What are some of the most effective layered security controls for financial institutions to consider? Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today with Marshall Toburin. He's the EGRC Solutions Manager with RSA Archer, and I'm also speaking with Angel Grant, Senior Manager of Anti-Fraud Solutions with RSA. Marshall and Angel, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Angel, I want to toss this question to you first, and Marshall, I'd welcome your response as well. What does the FFIEC authentication guidance tell us about today's threat landscape? Well, Tom, the new supplement really tells us that today's threat landscape has dramatically changed since the initial guidance was issued in 2005. There have been changes not just in the sophistication and evolution of those events, real-time attacks such as man-in-the-browser Trojans like Zeus and SpyEye, but there's also been a change in the traditional customer base and the functionality and frequency uses our transaction online. So for years, we saw the primary focus for many financial institutions centered on protecting just the login and help prevent unauthorized access to accounts. But what we're seeing now is more targeted attacks against the actual transaction itself. And this is why that new FFIC supplement emphasized how important it is not only to protect the login, but also protect the transaction. Also with today's threat landscape, it's clear that the traditional KYC or know your customer policies simply are not enough. You not only need to know your customers now, but also you need to know what, what types and frequency of transactions they are conducting. By taking this approach, allow institutions to continuously adapt their security against these evolving threats, as there's no longer such a thing as one-and-done security implementation anymore. I certainly agree. Uh, this updated guidance tells us that the regulators are increasingly concerned with transaction fraud and information breaches, and the frequency, scope, and sophistication of the attacks is, has increased significantly since they issued the original guidance. Like the first issuance, which focused on risk assessments, this reemphasizes the importance of risk assessments. And unlike the last guidance, though, is a little more prescriptive to financial institutions on the issues that they need to consider within those risk assessments. I think for the larger financial institutions that, that have more sophisticated information security programs, they have been focusing a lot on their risk assessment and looking uh, across the various domains and threat environments. But for the smaller financial institutions, this guidance is more prescriptive and gives the financial institutions some specific issues that they need to take a look at as they do that risk assessment. So there's the emphasis to do it, and there's the, the targets that they need to be focusing on. Let's look ahead. What do you see as the most troubling fraud trends as we go into 2012? Well, there are a couple fraud trends that I see troubling as we enter into 2012. The first is the continuing evolution and sophistication of banking trojans. It's this fun cat-and-mouse game we have going on. So as soon as we modify our security com to combat one threat, these trojans are morphed into something new to bypass that layer of protection. A man-in-the-browser trojan like Zeus is a perfect example of a trojan which con is continuously morphing, and it can fully automate the fraud process from the initial infection to cash out of an account. So this means it not only hijacks the user's account, it can take over the user's credentials, but it can also take over the user's device. And while all this is going on, the funds of the account are being drained. The legitimate user is completely unaware because the details of that correct transaction and the original balance are still being displayed to that user. 
The second trend I see troubling going into 2012 is our lack of focus on securing the mobile channel. So it's important for us to remember that the fraudster community has easily figured out ways to move, move and manipulate from channel to channel. We are seeing the fraudsters continue to steal or purchase credentials, attack the web channel, recognize this channel has been secured, then move to the more vulnerable channel like your call center where they'll go in and socially engineer your call center agent to do things like add a payee, change your password, add a beneficiary, or change an email address. And as that mobile channel starts to increase and the adoption starts to increase, fraudsters have really noticed our lack of focus on securing this channel. And they have already started to explore how they can best exploit this channel. So although there hasn't been a ton of attacks against mobile channels yet, they're starting to create what I call failure attacks. So they're starting to do things like man in the mobile or SMS bypassing attacks to see how we'll react and respond to these types of attacks. I find this trend troubling because we tend to forget that fraudsters follow where they can make money. So they're like us. They, they're always looking for what the market trends are and where they can make the most ROI. And they're definitely in pilot mode right now in the mobile channel trying to figure out how they can best manipulate that channel too. And so what that means in terms of trends with respect to customers is that as the financial institutions secure their commercial account channels, the fraudsters tend to move from the commercial side of the house to the retail side of the house. And the progression across the industry is they go after the biggest financial institutions. As the, as the big financial institutions get their security in place, they move to smaller financial institutions that may not be as far along in the maturity curve. But as those institutions address their commercial then the fraudsters are left with the new channels, as Angel mentioned, mobile space, but also other aspects of the retail channel. And the problem for the financial institutions is that while the big dollar transactions are focused with those commercial accounts, they are protected under Article 4A of the Uniform Commercial Code. And if they've set their contracts up with their commercial customers correctly, they will generally be protected. It won't keep them out of the newspaper necessarily, but from the amount of loss they may sustain, they should be reasonably protected. But as the fraudsters move into the consumer space, the consumer relationship with a financial institution isn't governed by 4A. It's governed by the laws that set up by the federal government. And generally speaking, the consumers are protected above a fairly low dollar threshold for electronic type losses. So in some respects, the, the, the type of loss has changed as the fraudsters move into the retail space and the consumers are more prone to social engineering and may not necessarily pay as much attention to recommended security practices around uh, protecting credentials, practicing safe computing, or installing anti-malware. So it requires a little bit different approach to the consumer space. Marshall, a few minutes ago you mentioned risk assessments. In your view, where do institutions really need to improve their risk assessments before their next examination? Regulators take risk assessments very seriously and they can criticize a financial institution for not performing them or not performing them with an adequate scope. And so to really achieve best results and the intent of the law, 
the risk managers in the organizations, and, and I would I would include both the information security risk folks as well as the business risk, need to take a step back and look at the overall environment that uh, the bank operates within. So what are the products and services that the bank offers? How is money moved in and out of the company? How is information presented to, to customers and third parties? Uh, and then how is the whole infrastructure put together from the, you know, from the database to application server, but also through the delivery channel on the various websites. And I would add also for financial institutions that are using third parties to deliver content that they also are looking at those third party controls. So number one, you have to gather the whole population, document the population, and then do an assessment on the inherent risk, that is the, the amount of risk and the absence of controls, that if information was breached or unauthorized transactions were to occur, how large would they be? And from there, with limited resources, you could begin to work backward into the technical details around the security to that information or protecting those transactions. So large organizations can be fairly involved, and for small or less so, uh, assuming they don't have a lot of sophisticated delivery channels. But if they do that and they periodically refresh the risk assessment as the environment changes, then they should be in pretty good shape. Andrew, let's talk about fraud detection and transaction monitoring for a moment. What are some of the best practices that you see now? First is to place an emphasis on device identification, anomaly detection, and behavioral analysis, which will help determine a user's normal pattern of behavior against each transaction that's conducted on the account. So as I mentioned before, you not only need to know your customer, but you need to know your transactions now. So it's important that institutions can identify the activity on a customer's account that may be anomalous to that specific customer's unique behavior. So a basic example of this would be you have one customer who's a frequent user of online banking, transfers large sums of money on a regular basis. So if you see this user initiating several large payments over the course of a few days, it may not be suspicious. However, if you see another user that typically just logs into his account once a week, pays household bills, now starts to initiate larger payments from a different device than they would normally use, this sudden account activity should be considered highly suspicious. The next best practice I would recommend is to be able to understand and detect the difference between humans and Trojans. There are certain types of behaviors that might appear to be a real user, but are actually indicators that the session has been hijacked by a Trojan. For example, a man in the browser Trojan can use HTML injection to introduce additional fields into a user's session. With advanced analysis, this type of activity can be detected and should immediately raise a red flag that something is wrong. And then finally, when an institution detects suspicious activity on a high-risk transaction, they need to decide what to do. And we, see, we tend to see two primary schools of thought here. Do you challenge the user visibly or do you delay and investigate? Some financial institutions I've worked with have chose to initiate visible challenges, such as step-up authentication with things like one-time passwords or KBA questions. And they're doing this in an attempt to confirm, confirm a user's identity or intention to conduct a transaction. While the other school of thought chooses to automate their security decisions through invisible monitoring and allow high-risk transactions to be sent to a team of fraud analysts for further investigation. 
by taking this approach, it gives an FI an ability to drive their decision-making based on what their organizational risk threshold tolerance is. Andrew, you used the word challenge. Now, the guidance says that current challenge questions are ineffective. What do you recommend as an alternative? After the 2005 guidance, most FIs really focused on implementing static challenge questions such as, what's your pet's name or what's your high school mascot? And this was primarily adopted because it was considered a lower cost and easier way to authenticate users. But what we've seen, the updated supplement has taken into consideration how our information sharing habits have dramatically changed since 2005. So if you think about it, Facebook was just launched in 2004, and now it has over 800 million people sharing all types of information they would normally use as responses to these challenge questions. So moving forward, I'd recommend FIs think about a couple things as they select an alternative. So first, their security should align with risk. So if an FI wants to retain their current challenge questions, they need to evaluate the current implementation and compensating risk factors. So as a compensating risk factor, they should consider alternatives such as better device identification or transaction monitoring to better detect those anomalous behaviors I mentioned before. Also, as FIs evaluate the appropriate balance between the consumer experience and fraud prevention, some may consider completely ripping and replacing their challenge questions and replacing it with alternatives such as one-time passcodes, out-of-band authentication. In the solution, we have seen most of the market start to evaluate as a challenge question replacement is dynamic KBA. So this is otherwise known as out-of-wallet questions. They're looking at KBA as a good authentication and fraud prevention alternative as it helps validate the user's identity in real time. And unlike challenge questions, KBA questions can be dynamically generated and are top-of-mind questions and answer sets that the user will be able to answer easily, but hopefully a fraudster will not. That's a great segue to a question I asked at the top of this conversation. I'd like to hear from both of you, maybe starting with you, Angel. What do you see as some of the most effective layered security controls for institutions to consider now? Financial institutions should implement layered security and other controls that are in line with the magnitude of transactional risk. So while the authentication of customers that log in with things like username and password and one-time passcodes and KBA present that first layer of security for users logging into accounts, Additional layers of security and controls are necessary to ensure that first layer of authentication has not been compromised by advanced threats like keyloggers and malware, which are able to capture the data um, used to authenticate that user at login. So an effective approach would be to not only provide that basic login protection, but layer it with some form of risk-based authentication with step-up authentication for higher risk or suspicious activities. This coupled with sophisticated device identification, behavioral analysis, anomaly detection, and transaction monitoring capabilities would provide that effective layered security approach. So even if a cyber criminal is able to steal a user's credential, take over their device, circumvent login, there's still that another visible, invisible layer of defense that's very difficult to get around and will ad- adapt and detect new threats over time. And I certainly agree with the, with the point about behavioral analysis. I mentioned the consumers and the fact that fraud is moving into the consumer space and, and consumers don't have the same motivation or interest in, in providing security. And behavioral analysis provides an advantage for financial institutions 
that as the final layer in the process. As Angel mentioned, it's looking at, at the standard types of things like uh, geolocation, but, but it's also analyzing in some cases for individual consumers the, the time of day that they typically come in and do their banking, the day of the week that they do their banking, computer type that they're using, the operating system, the operating system version. So, for example, uh, to speak to the mobile banking, if a consumer normally comes in and, and does their banking using a PC with a Vista operating system 2.1, and now all of a sudden they're coming in with a mobile banking application, it scores a little bit higher risk, and it's potentially a fraud scenario. It also looks at the type of business that a customer is transacting. Customers have a standard pattern of activity, and so sometimes when they come in just to do bill pay, and other and they may never look at their statements, uh, they may never change their email address or their mailing address, and so these behavioral tools build a pattern, and, and when it sees anomalies out there, it begins to score that risk higher. So for consumers where there's, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of consumer accounts uh, with online banking activity, this is really the uh, best way to try to, to find those needles in a haystack and address those before a loss is, is sustained. Marshall, one of the key tenets of the FFIEC guidance is customer education. What are your recommendations regarding education but for both the retail and the commercial customers? Well, education is, is, is really critical, uh, both on the commercial and the consumer side. For the, cons- for the commercial side, you have to do education to, one, reinforce your responsibilities under Article 4A. And so you're talking to generally a clientele in the larger companies that already is pretty sophisticated and their security may be well and, and very uh, operationally uh, sound. But for the smaller businesses, sole proprietorships, you can kind of look at those the same way that you might look at, at consumer account education. And in those cases, you need to be a little more uh, basic in terms of telling them and repeatedly telling them that they need to protect their, their credentials, don't use unsecured wireless, don't download malware or spyware, make sure that your computer's uh, anti-malware programs loaded. Don't place your passwords and IDs in a location where somebody else could get to them. Don't give your passwords uh, and credentials uh, up to a, fisher, a phishing attack. Notify the financial institution promptly if you think your account's been compromised. And if you see um, reports or notifications from your financial institution that the name and address, phone number, email has been changed or other security settings changed, definitely respond as quickly as possible to try to prevent any loss from occurring. Good time for one final question here. I'd love to get final thoughts from each of you. Marshall, I'll start with you. As we look at conforming with the FFIEC guidance, what do you see institutions most overlooking now? Well, just really repeating what I had said earlier, I think there's there's two things that if I were in a situation of uh, enhancing security within an FI, one, I'd take a step back, look at my risk assessment, make sure that I had taken a holistic approach 
uh, look to see that it is integrated in with the overall EGRC program for the company. One area that I think is overlooked oftentimes in larger companies that may have an information security function, they don't necessarily talk with the traditional risk management function of the company where loss management occurs. And so I think there's a lot of value in looking at the losses for unauthorized transactions that have that have been posted within the FI. Many times those unauthorized transactions have something to do with a compromise of an account. Maybe an online compromise, it could have been an phishing attack or, you know, could have been a more traditional uh, stolen uh, checkbook. But in, in any case, those are very prescriptive and and are valuable in assessing and kind of back-testing the effectiveness of the risk assessment process and whether there's other elements that need to be included there. And then lastly, to repeat myself, a very big proponent that as you get the stronger authentication tools implemented in, in your organization, both on the commercial and the consumer side, don't forget the use of uh, behavioral analytics tools to supplement those layers of security to help you identify uh, emerging problems as they occur. What I'm seeing as an area overlooked is the mobile channel. And because the mobile channel wasn't specifically called out in the guidance, I'm seeing this as an overlooked area. When I'm talking with FIs, I'm always emphasizing to them that we, we need to ensure that we learn from our past security lessons. In, in the early 2000s, when most FIs rolled out their online banking, security was an afterthought. As most companies were so focused on the functionality they wanted to provide online, this is all new. So now I'm starting to see this trend again as FIs are rolling out their mobile banking strategy. They're so focused on what functionality they should include in that channel, they're forgetting to include security into their bigger picture plan. So we must not go down that path again. Security must not be an afterthought. Even though the supplement didn't specifically call out mobile channel, banks should assume that they should apply this guidance across all their, their channel platforms. Well, that's well said, and that's an excellent point with which to end this. Angel, Marshall, thank you so much for your time and your insights today. Great. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. We've been talking about the FFIEC guidance and layered security solutions. I've been talking with Marshall Tobirin and Angel Grant with RSA. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.